So let me quickly introduce Dr. Joel Jin. He is currently an assistant professor of clinical psychology at Seattle Pacific University. He is a second gen Korean Canadian that moved from greater Toronto area to California. So I'm sure he hopefully is enjoying the weather change there. Um, but he studied his uh, BSc in psychology, neuroscience and behavior from McMaster's and received his PhD in clinical psychology and MA in theology and ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, you know, he obviously is an expert in numerous topics, but today he will be talking to us about mental health stigma and the issue of perfectionism. As you know, um, you know, pastoring is a difficult job of in itself, but I think he's going to also specifically talk about um, some concerns and issues that are related to ministry. So with the topic called pastoring a congregation of whole people, not perfect people. Here is Dr. Joel Jin. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, John, for that introduction. Um, let me make sure my slides are being presented and that you can see that. Okay. I've got all my browser boxes in different sections so that I can see the chat a little bit. I know, John, you're going to be kind of monitoring that and um, facilitating questions for me as it goes, but I'm really excited to be here, folks. Um, thanks for being here and sticking around to the end of the online conference. I know it's a lot to sit, um, or maybe you've got a little, maybe you've been walking or standing, but to all the self-diagnosed perfectionists here today, thank you for your attendance. Whether you're looking for antidotes of perfectionism for yourself or for another, let me be the first critic about my own workshop, it won't be perfect. So I've probably rehearsed the first line of this workshop a hundred times and I'll still review the recording with a shame that only we perfectionists know of, if you know what I'm talking about. But with all the introductory humor aside, I'm really grateful for each of you here today. Um, I hope I can illuminate this topic of perfectionism in our Asian American Christian congregations. I hope I can give you some practical tools that I've been thinking about, researching, reading upon, um, and that it can facilitate some more discussion and some dreaming and visioning of how we can best support one another, right? Uh, I'm speaking to you from the unceded ancestral lands of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past, present, and future. I honor the land itself and the Duwamish tribe with gratitude. They are people that are still here and who continue to honor and bring light to their ancient heritage. I'm also speaking with the support of my love and wife and the strength of my family. Um, you can see uh, my wife and my late mother on that left side, and then my dad and my younger brother on the right side. My dad and my late mother forged a path for me and my younger brother as a Korean-Canadian Christian in this world. So I'm always grateful for them, and I speak to you with them in mind. On any other day, I'd love to have listened to each of your stories to get to know you more, right? I'd want to hear the stories of your lives, and at first, I'd listen for your life goals. Those are the goals that your life was oriented toward and those expectations that you worked hard to meet. And I'd ask about where these goals and expectations emerge from, perhaps from yourself, maybe your parents, maybe from a spiritual mentor. And as equally interesting, I'd then listen for whether you felt like you met any of these goals and expectations. And perhaps whether you felt like a good enough child to your parents a valuable employee to your employers, or even a good, good enough Christian to God. And for some of you, those goals in life are relational. Am I a good enough, oh, let me just backtrack here. Am I a good enough parent? Am I a good enough friend? For others, they're career related. Am I a good enough pastor or worship leader? And I imagine if we all listened to one another, we would hear the high standards that we set for ourselves with varying degrees of whether we felt like we met them or not. And just noticing a chat that there might be a poor connection here. So um, let me see. Looks like some are okay, some are, some are not. Okay. Thanks for the feedback, folks. Um, sorry to those who uh, are having a poor connection there. Um, but the idea of stories, if I were to listen to your life story, I probably hear different components, your life goals and whether you felt like you met them or not. But what would be most tragic 
the tragedy that I'm most curious about this question mark is that if we were to hear those stories of strength and resilience that you bring and across this room, and you still feel like you're not good enough, right? After all the details of sacrifice and hardship you had to overcome, some of you still wouldn't accept our celebration nor our compassion. Instead, you'd rather point out like someone else could have done better or ah, I could have done more. And I think that would be the tragedy to hear in some of our stories. What's comforting is that you're not alone. I imagine we all suffer from different degrees of feeling less than. And for some of us, it was severe, right? Our parents or our certain spiritual leaders chose to shame and criticize us. For others, it was milder, but still there are creeping thoughts that make it challenging to be satisfied and grateful. I know you're not alone because I've had the same thoughts and feelings too. And additionally, my research and clinical work point to many Asian Americans and Asian American Christians even more specifically, who seem to fixate on the gap between their ideals and reality. So I wanna offer you two case illustrations to help us identify what we're dealing with. These are stories that are an integration of my research and clinical work. They're based off of true stories, though details are changed to not depict one single person. Maybe you can listen to some pieces of these stories that are familiar to you, that resonate with you. So imagine a Korean American Christian named Judy. Judy is a pastor of an established church in the Pacific Northwest. She leads a community that is, that is historically Japanese American, but she's the first person who isn't of Japanese heritage. She was hired by the elders and voted favorably by the congregation with the great hopes of appealing to a younger generation diversifying the community and applying her fresh seminary knowledge. And with such great hopes, anyone would feel the pressure. Nonetheless, Judy is determined to meet those expectations and more. Judy has a passion for Asian American theology and would like to pursue a PhD one day, maybe at Princeton Theological Seminary. She's told herself and the congregation that there'll be an adjustment period during this time. Judy knows that there'll be setbacks like any other time of her life, yet she also knows she can try her best. After all, she has achieved so much for herself already and believes that she is qualified. She was an excellent student through college and seminary. Previous mentors and professors and former employers give shining reviews of her. And with every setback that came her way, professionally and personally, she buckled down and found a way through. And when she didn't know what to do, she studied or reached out for help. As she prayed and meditated privately, God reminded her that she is loved and that she put too much on herself. This was helpful given the mixed support from her family. Overall, she has a positive outlook that she'll learn from her mistakes and continue growing as a pastor. Any of this sound familiar to you? Any of this that you can resonate with, with Judy? Hold on to Judy. Let me introduce you to Kevin. Okay, imagine a Vietnamese American Christian named Kevin. We find Kevin in the Midwest, far away from his sunny Southern California home. Kevin recently completed the last of his exams at the end of his first semester of seminary. And thinking about what his parents might say if he had failed was just enough motivation to keep him studying through his first winter blues, right? What a transition from Southern California to the Midwest. He had received a large scholarship to begin his dream of becoming a pastor. However, he had to leave his family and the familiarity of home for the first time. Kevin is a first-generation college student. His parents are small business owners who work long hours. This left Kevin having to juggle a lot. School, part-time work, caring for his younger siblings and cousins. Nonetheless, he was a tenacious student, and he didn't waste a single moment of his day trying to live up to the life God had called him to live. His family was worried that his dreams were set too high, and frankly, too expensive. But with the scholarship, they knew that God was making a way, and Kevin believed that too. He knew that his family expected a lot from him, especially his dad, and this made sense because they had sacrificed so much. Kevin wished he could have received a scholarship from a college near home, a seminary near home, so that he could take care of his siblings and cousins occasionally. As a testament to his abilities, Kevin landed a competitive internship for the summer near home, his family are proud of his hard work, yet he can't help feeling he could have, you know, done better. For example, finding an internship that pays more, even though right now he can take care of his siblings. Back at home, his grandmother always reminds him 
to be grateful of every opportunity. Okay, so that's Kevin. I'm hoping that there's some pieces of Kevin's story that you can resonate with. So here's my question to you. Maybe you think to it, think about it yourself internally or put it down into the chats. There are two different but similar stories. When listening to the stories of Judy and Kevin, what similarities can you hear? Just take a moment to consider that. And I love that I can see the chat here. <laughs> I'm glad that you're uh, entering some, some ideas and thoughts into the chat. This is what I want to highlight between Judy and Kevin. One similarity are the high standards set for them or by others, right? High achievers. With Judy, we can hear that the goals that the church has for her and the dream of her PhD in Asian American theology. With Kevin, we hear the goals that he has for becoming for himself to become a pastor and his family's belief that God is also preparing his professional life. So God's standards, family standards, his own standards. Another similarity is each of their drives to meet these standards. Both Judy and Kevin have a high power motor to strive for these goals. Hope you're hearing that. And last, both have a history of success and accomplishment. Judy and Kevin are really strong students. Although they're at different professional stages in their lives, there are observable achievements that point to their hard work, competencies, and potentials. And we haven't necessarily gone into the struggles that they've had, how often they've had, how hard they've had to work, how many times they've had to try and try again. So here are three similarities that I'm hearing, okay? What are the differences? What if we listen for the differences in the stories of Judy and Kevin? You can think to yourself or enter into the chat, what differences do you hear in how they are striving toward their goals and meeting all these standards? The difference I wanna highlight between Judy and Kevin is a common distinction among people who are high achievers, perhaps known to us as perfectionists. And I see some comments in the chat too. Um, you're, you're seeing a lot, of, a lot of different differences. What I wanna highlight is that for Judy, there's an understanding that setbacks and mistakes are inevitable. In the face of high standards to meet, either set by herself or by others, there's um, a subtle acceptance that she'll be able to overcome obstacles as they come. She believes in herself, not to have every answer, but to find an answer in time. And even in her private spiritual life, it's met with this sense of compassion from God. On the other hand, Kevin, there is an underlying dissatisfaction with each accomplishment, really subtle though. Um, or there's something more that Kevin could have done or achieved. A scholarship to a seminary, well, it wasn't close enough to home. A competitive internship near home, well, it doesn't pay more. So certainly Kevin has high expectations to live up to as well. His potential to meet these expectations are evidenced by his previous accomplishments and work ethic. Right? However, there's a limited celebration, a persistent fear of falling short and disappointing others and a lack of rest. So I, I know that you've been highlighting some different aspects of these stories and you're resonating with some of these parts too. What I want this to illustrate is that there's two aspects of perfectionism. First, there's this adaptive striving toward a goal or standard, however high, however low, whatever that goal or standard might be. And second, there's a maladaptive perceived gap between our ideal and actual performance. I think if we can begin to tease these two aspects apart, then we might be able to address the core problem of the perfectionists we see in ourselves or others. So research supports these two aspects, support, uh, setting high standards, and perceiving a discrepancy between our standards and our actual performance. Moreover, there's evidence that this perception of large gaps is associated with greater mental health symptoms. So depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, higher perceived stress, um, you can imagine those negative outcomes. What perfectionists suffer from is not that their dreams are too big or their goals are too lofty necessarily. Perfectionists suffer from the perception that they continue to fall short of their goals, even when they've met them, right? So you can imagine maybe some of us back in the day when we get a certain grade, but it's just not quite good enough, but it was a good grade. It was good work. Um, perfectionists, they fixate on not getting something quite right and obsess over getting something just right, okay? So I'm not here today to stop striving. 
We strive to be better than, not because we're less than, but just we strive to be better because we're meant for more than. Striving is what we ought to do when we see a vision of what is good and we accept a reality that we have not yet reached that vision. It might take time, but striving towards standards and goals propels us, it builds us, it changes us, it heals us. And also, I'm not here today to stop growth. We grow when we identify areas of growth. In the context of caring relationships, our weaknesses, they become healed and our potential becomes met. So we ought to seek feedback and learn from our mistakes. And when we're wrong, we can correct ourselves too. Rather, I'm here today to address the gap that we often perceive in our efforts to be more than. Fixating on the gap infects the way that we think, we feel, we act, and we relate. So chime in if, you, if you've had these thoughts too. I've never meet my standards. I'm always falling short. Okay. Or how about these feelings? Uh, feeling ashamed like something is wrong with us. Or we feel angry towards ourselves for missing the mark. Maybe some of the actions, okay? We act by studying longer, working harder, and often at the expense of our health, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. Um, and we relate to ourselves in unhealthy ways. And we present ourselves to others by hiding our weaknesses. So herein lies the problem of perfectionism. It is not necessarily that striving towards our standards is problematic in and of itself, nor is it the assessment of where we can improve. Instead, the problem of perfectionism is that though we might meet our standards, someone says like, wow, great job, um, or we might come very close, we still feel, we still perceive as though there's this discrepancy from our ideals and our reality of all that we've done. Although perfectionists may achieve greatly, a perfectionist suffers. And I suggest that they suffer because perfectionists may find it difficult to be anything other than that. There's a limited choice. There's a belief that I won't be acceptable or people won't love me if I'm less than perfect. Also, I suggest perfectionists suffer because the success and achievements obtained through this perfectionism often doesn't outweigh the harm that is caused on the journey toward that achievement. Perfectionism can make one lonely, hiding behind a mask of perfection, and fearful that someone will find out that they're anything but perfect. So if we turn to Judy and Kevin, right, what if Kevin accepted the growing pains of being far away from home as a first-generation college student and celebrated his accomplishments? What if Kevin believed in himself? He was awarded a large scholarship and he obtained a competitive internship. If Kevin were to receive compassion from God rather than only hear a call to not waste his life, I estimate that he, like Judy, would have a different view of himself. He would also hear the words of his grandma and his parents who are proud of him. And ultimately, I think he would have a view of God in a different light as well. So I hope this is resonating for you so far. I've got four points that I think we can, you can start to enact in, in your daily leadership lives. So as leaders, if you're able to identify these two aspects of perfectionism, then you can start to lead and counsel more effectively because leaders can validate efforts to strive. Right? You'll honor the desire for someone to grow, explore, dream, and expand rather than stomping flat these desires. You'll fan a flame in someone. Okay, and I hope that you can do that as leaders. Second, you'll expand the goals and standards we set for ourselves, along with the achievements. And whatever those achievements are, you'll also include goals like rest and healing. And perhaps for another session, um, aren't these the goals that capitalism and individualism despise? Resting, healing, restoring. Third, you'll encourage and offer compassion when someone is down and hard on themselves. Okay, so this is different than sarcasm and criticism when someone's down. Instead, you can encourage them. You can be the companion who invites someone to see the good they have done and the great that they've done too. And in turn, this someone who is fixating on the gap will eventually notice that there's both more to do and yet a lot that has been done already. We wanna to try to hold that tension. Last, as leaders, you'll, you'll label the situational and contextual factors that no doubt can alter standards and diminish capacity to meet them. So I can only imagine the stories of labeling you've done already from the pulpit to pastoral council meetings to leading small groups, whatever uh, your capacities are, 
when someone in the congregation or in your families criticized themselves that they couldn't have done more during the pandemic. Like, oh, I should have gotten that raise. I had to delay a year or whatever that might be. I'm sure you've graciously offered that we are living in an unprecedented time of collective burden. It makes sense that it's been hard, right? This kind of emotional support for actions that you can do immediately, I think. So when you as a leader can identify these two aspects of perfectionism, your ability to strengthen the community will be more accurate and targeted depending on what you're working with. And they'll be more effective depending on whether you work on that aspect of striving or that perceived discrepancy. And to that last point of labeling the situational and contextual factors, isn't it our story as Asian Americans that we are observed constantly and evaluated critically whether we are good enough or not? The model minority myth in our North American context perpetuates the unrelenting eye of whether we indeed are model citizen or not. It is that same myth that cuts and divides us from other racial ethnic groups, even cutting and dividing us within the Asian diaspora and because the model minority myth is a tool that compares one another to each other and the lie that persuasively whispers we're not good enough. This is the myth that fragments the strength and power that only comes from unity within the Asian diaspora and across the aisles of our siblings of all racial and ethnic groups. Moreover, isn't it our story as Asian American Christians that we seek recovery and healing from feeling less than? We look up for a truer image of God. So we're adjusting our optics. We're trying to get a glimpse of something that's clear picture, not an image of God that constantly observes and criticizes and evaluates us. You know, how often is shame infused in our sermons, our prayers and our Christian communion culture because we fear, what if I'm not good enough? What if I'm a failure? What if I'm less than? So these fear-based questions rather than love-filled answers can become what our theologies orient toward and revolve around. So true, we all fall short, but wasn't there a way made for us to be healed and to be in renewed relationships? So my little piece of theology here um, regarding what our theology ought to revolve around, it comes from Dr. Valimadi Kirkainen, who references John Wesley and writes that salvation is about instantaneous justification and a continuous regeneration toward perfection. By God's grace and the power of the spirit, we are healed, renewed, and made holy. Um, and maybe there's a cheesy pun there, holy with a W there too. Yet he goes on, although perfection in love and holiness is to be set as the ultimate goal, constant pursuit toward that goal, inspired and energized by the power of the spirit, is to be seen as the focus of Christian life with the understanding that perfection is never to be had in this life although we still continue to pursue it. Furthermore, our examination of this word perfection in, in the New Testament points to a Greek word, telos. And scriptures such as Matthew 5.48, right? Be perfect, for I am perfect. Uh, perfection through the Greek can be associated with the images of maturing, progressing, developing toward an end goal, rather than having met our end goal already. Perfection paints the picture of ourselves as becoming whole people, loving people in relationship with God and one another and a new relationship with ourselves. So in this process of becoming whole, how often are we impatient with such maturation? Right? So as parents, we are short with our children um, when they're acting out from their big emotions. As pastors, we're frustrated when volunteer leaders make mistakes. As people, we expect ourselves to have answers to situations we've never even faced. The good news is that we are accompanied with the advocate who inspires and energizes us in a long journey of sanctification. It's good news that the plan of reconciliation was set in motion long before us. Right? This, this process, this journey of perfecting you isn't just about you perfecting yourself. And it's good news that there is the perfecter who molds and crafts us in loving relationships and community. We aren't our own perfectionists. We are to be made whole with one another and by one another too. And this is why I emphasize these emotional skills. I've called you church leaders to validate, expand, encourage, and label already. Do this for yourselves, for your family members, and for your congregants, because the consequences of perfect people, people who are perfectionists, is that they're self-critical. 
They're self-reliant. They're burnt out and lonely and never quite satisfied. Uh, I know I'm covering um, things really quickly. I wish we could interact a little bit more. So I wanna just give you um, a few more um, practical tips. Right? Um, with the remaining time, I wanna dive deeper into understanding the psychology of perfectionism and how you might address these aspects. And I think these ways of understanding and working cut across personal, relational, communal, and ecclesial levels of your jobs. Whether you're a pastor, um, uh, some kind of faith leader in your community. So let me start with your thoughts. I've emphasized the importance of first identifying and distinguishing two different aspects of perfectionism, setting high standards for oneself, standing whatever standards or expectations, and then perceiving a discrepancy between our ideal and actual performance. We wanna to start to close that gap, that huge discrepancy, we wanna to start to close that. So I think this is related to the content of our thoughts. It's like the ingredients to your cooking. It's what you're working with. So research su suggests that intentional practice of gratitude and self-compassion are key antidotes to fixating and obsessing on falling short. I think practicing gratitude and self-compassion can offer can often be our first words of prayer. We already do this. Prayers of thanksgiving integrate and weave our historical journey to this point. We look back to give thanks. These are the verbal altars that mark how far we've come thus far. And such a tapestry of thanksgiving bears witness to our journey, reminding us and maybe one of one another of the obstacles we've overcome and the battles that we've endured. And in other words, Thanksgiving is the empathic understanding to why we are the way that we are and how we got to where we are as well. So practically, privately, we might pray or write a prayer of thanks. Hey, you might call this journaling. You might call it a stream of gratitude. Um, and publicly, what if we collectively recognize the milestones for each of our communities in the past couple of years, especially? What if we took intentional time to offer a prayer of Thanksgiving that paints our journey so far. The transitions from online to in-person, back to online, back to in-person, trying to do hybrid, um, our small group leaders, you know, having to adjust with childcare and all the other responsibilities of work and caring for the congregation. What if we started to paint this tapestry, to create this tapestry as a prayer of thanksgiving, as a practice of gratitude and self-compassion, as a way for us to learn and understand, why are we here right now? so that we're not so harsh on ourselves. So I've talked about like the ingredients of the recipe and now I think about how you cook. So the, we talked about the contents of thoughts, now thinking about the process of thinking. So research supports the practice of meditation and mindfulness as intentional ways to disrupt um, how we fixate and obsess. Just gotta, okay, slide's not being shared. Let me make sure. Okay, here we go. I think we're back online. Um, so talked about the content of thoughts, now going towards the process, right? So research supports that the practice of meditation and mindfulness um, are intentional ways to disrupt how we fixate and obsess. And perhaps we need more support of this kind of prayer and meditation in the church today. So to guide congregations on settling and listening, to sacrifice our words in the moment for some quietness, to be of single-mindedness on a word or a phrase or image. And this is the intentional practice of harnessing our mind that is often cluttered, scattered, and distracted trying to pull roots from our contemplative traditions. Again, we can do this privately, but what if we did this with one another uh, for short amounts of times? What if we as parents, um, if we're fortunate to be caregivers, what if we cuddled with our kids and we listened to one another's heartbeats? Right? We just settled one another. We focused on each other. Um, instead of reaching for our phones in the morning, we gaze at our spouses as the morning light rises. We just take a moment to be in awe of one another, whoever those close, um, intimate, loving relationships are. 
what I'm trying to suggest is that research-based principles and practices can be applied into our daily lives and that this is a spiritual endeavor as well. These are accessible and approachable ways to reorient our lives. Okay, we, we got to some thoughts. I'm gonna shift over to some emotions and I wanna highlight grief and anger today. Okay, for some of us, we need to grieve the fantasies and the ideals um, to make room for what's in front of us. So I've said that striving is good, setting standards and goals are good for us, but sometimes um, they, these turn into fantasies. We could benefit from laying down certain standards and expectations, especially what we have for one another. It is a surprise when we marry our spouse rather than our fantasy spouse, for example. It is a shock when we care for our child rather than a fantasy child. When we grieve these fantasies, we can make room for the person who is there instead. We don't demand perfection from them um, and no longer because we can love who they are. Imagine if this happened to us as well. Um, so sure, we have preferences and we still have dreams, but we're no longer surprised and shocked every time your spouse enters the room or your child enters the room or your worship leader enters the room. We can just focus on who they are instead. Some of us need to express our anger outward. Okay, I mean this in a healthy way with the support of caring relationships we ought to find what is frustrating us from outside of ourselves. So for instance, okay, you might feel angry because you couldn't get enough work done this pandemic, maybe sermon prep was too long or the ministry didn't take off like, like you thought it would. But what if instead of attacking ourselves, we were loving to ourselves by expressing our frustration and anger a little bit outwards at the pandemic? Again, in safe, healthy ways. Um, I think that grief and anger go hand in hand. Sometimes we're angry because we feel sad and could use time to grieve. Sometimes we're depressed and down when we're feeling angry instead. But um, getting into emotions, that could be a topic for another day. All that to say, if we focus on our emotions, how can we be most loving and caring to ourselves? Last, how do we treat ourselves and others? What if pastors and church leaders rested? And these are experimental thoughts. Um, I've seen it in brief glimpses before, right? Um, so I'm offering suggestions as ways for us to keep dreaming and, and thinking about this. But what if in between each sermon series, there is a Sunday service dedicated to reviewing and recapping? What if pastors bought some time to prepare for the next sermon series by just pausing in the middle and examining the five sermons, seven, eight sermons you've already preached and enhanced lessons taught? Okay. What if the pastor didn't uh, even review and recap, but congregants, shared brief testimonies on how the previous sermon series went and how it's you know, working in their lives. What if worship leaders, especially if, the, if there's only one praise band leader, put a recording of a song and facilitate a time of prayer and reflection? Again, I don't think uh, these are so innovative. Uh, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. But I'm just saying, what if there was a culture where we actually looked out for one another and we still learned and benefited from one another? What if sermon series, Sunday service had breakout groups and people interacted with one another for a whole hour uh, instead of more than that one question of the day? Just some thoughts. So I, um, I, I'm wrapping up here, um, looking at the time. Um, I, I think identifying and distinguishing these two aspects of perfectionism is one of the biggest steps that you can do when you're starting to think about whole people rather than perfect people. Honor the striving towards a goal and standards, and then also see how we can decrease the gap between our ideals and actual performance. And leaders, you can do this in four different ways. You can validate the efforts to strive. You can expand the goals and standards to include rest, um, healing, recovery. Third, you can encourage with compassion, especially when someone's really attacking themselves and being down, or even from the pulpit as you're preaching or when you're giving uh, leading a small group, just the tone of encouragement and compassion. And then fourth, you can label situational and contextual factors that impact um, striving, that, that diminish our energy and our capacity to reach those goals. This is important because perfectionism impacts our whole psychologies, our whole beings. I think God has a way of redeeming each of these parts, the way that we think and what we think about, the way that we feel, the way that we act, and the way that we relate to ourselves with one another and with God. 
And the ways that you're gonna intervene is gonna intersect across multiple different levels of your job. Your personal development, your relationships with your own family or close friends, uh, but then also just across relationships, communally within the whole church, and then ecclesially, just in terms of structure, the way that things are conducted. And um, I was just kind of, um, didn't put them right into words, so I've tried to uh, summarize the different examples that I've offered you here on this slide, right? So praying, thanksgiving, and gratitude at private and public levels, remembering the history of the journey, so that tapestry, meditating and cultivating single-mindedness so that you're able to harness your thoughts. When you're starting to obsess and fixate, we're able to bring those thoughts back in. I'm grieving fantasies so that we can welcome what is in front of us. Expressing anger outward in a healthy and safe way to not attack ourselves inward. I'm easing the burden for one another, imagining new ways of harnessing our gifts and strengths. Um, so uh, all that to say, this is um, an exciting time for you to be pastoring or leading a congregation of whole people, not perfect people, right? holding on to those images that we're in development, we're growing and maturing. Um, and maybe on this side of eternity, we won't have reached that perfect mark, although we'll still try. And in the meantime, we'll offer these emotional supports, these leadership skills, so that you can take care of yourself and you can take care of your congregation a bit more too. Okay, so I've got my email here. I'm looking at the time. I think I've got enough time to answer lots of questions and have some dialogue because I know that was a lot of material too. Okay, good. I see John coming on, so uh, I'm doing something right here. All right. Thank you, Dr. Joel Jin, for that wonderful presentation. Um, yeah, it got my thought thinking. I have like three, four questions of my own, but let's go first for audience. And there's one by Bonnie. Um, and here's the question. It's it, in regards to the origin or causes. Are there some specific common causes, family dynamics, sociocultural pressures, distorted theology, or others that push people from adapt adaptive striving for mal maladaptive perfect perfectionism? And how can we counteract these in our churches? Yeah, that's a really great question. I didn't get too much into, I guess, the underlying causes. Um, so thanks, Bonnie, for highlighting all the different pathways where this perfectionism can emerge. Um, so let me try to hit these uh, one by one family dynamics. Um, yeah, I, I think we hear so much from ourselves, our stories, maybe from other stories within Asian American families where um, there's something about our parents or our caregivers that always pushed us, right? That there's um, that A minus wasn't good enough. We need an A, that A wasn't good enough. We need an A plus. And so there's something within the family dynamics of emphasizing and prioritizing absolute perfection and not expecting anything less. So we could point to parenting, um, how parents compare. I think I had seen that in the earlier chats um, when parents compare kids like, oh, why couldn't you be like this kid? Or why couldn't you be like your cousin? Um, or they might shame some of their kids. So it's like, oh, like you know, you're, you're better than this or you're so bad at this. Um, so that that's one layer, but I also where that parent, where those parenting practices stem from. And I think that's that comes down to the social cultural pressures. This all in emphasis on upward social mobility to be, become an upstanding citizen in this North American context was related to being highly educated, um, to having to try to pursue one of, I don't know, five career options that's financially stable, that's socially valued. Um, and so I think those family parenting practices and those family dynamics also stem from sociocultural trauma that our parents, that our parents or older generations are still trying to um, heal from and recover from as well. Um, distorted theology. Um, yeah, I, I think distorted theology can come into play that's fused with distorted Asian American kind of, or Asian Confucianism too. And so um, when I think about anger, the ability to express that anger in a healthy way um, that might have been hard in families, that might have been hard in churches. Um, it's interesting that maybe even back, back in the day when Confucius was thinking about, hey, when there's a tyrant king up there on the throne, the people should revolt. And that would be a great way of showing that the people understand that there is right and wrong. 
And so what if that had kind of infused more into our family cultures? And we think even to our Christian theology about um, how can we express our anger outwards? Like there's this ultimate great sacrifice that was about anger and wrath that had to be poured not on us, but on someone else, um, namely Jesus. And so even trying to understand that there is anger as an emotion and that if we don't externalize that um, in a healthy and safe way, that it often berates us and attacks us. So um, I, I guess I'm trying to integrate some of my psychology and theology at this point of thinking, um, how can theologically we start to welcome us not just attacking ourselves, but then also trying to renew and enliven ourselves at the same time. Um, maybe those are some of the few ways that we're pushing people to be more maladaptive perfectionists uh, rather than more adaptive. Hopefully that's helpful. Thank you. Here's another uh, very popular question. It's a very practical one. I guess yeah. people just want to have more examples of uh, healthy ways of validating efforts to strive, yeah. examples of what it look like. And maybe if I can attach on here, Dr. Jin, uh, a next very popular question, yeah. maybe some um, examples that you might see in working with youth yeah. um, and teenagers, I think is another popular question that's coming up here. Yeah, yeah, thanks for those questions. So um, how do we, um, I, okay. So great that these questions are popping up here. Um, I think holding the tension between, hey, you did your best effort and you achieved something great. You made this project, you got this grade, you're finding your passion, and then also holding that intention with, um, and maybe you wanna try this next time, or we could do even a little bit better, or how about we try it another way? I, I think with youth, with adolescents, as parents, as youth ministry leaders, we want to be delicate to help mature them in thinking about it's both and rather than either or. So it's not that you either make the mark or you don't. You either got this grade or not. You have the colleges you want to go to or not. But what if we start to think in degrees and so we can emphasize like, okay, you're going towards the right direction. Um, that takes a lot of psychological maturity, I think. Even maybe, I mean, even I have a hard time doing that as an adult, maybe you do too. But thinking in nuanced ways of, um, I'm going in the right direction and I can still change my course a little bit to a certain degree. Um, so I'm trying to think, is, is that concrete enough for folks? Maybe you'll give me some feedback as I look at the chat. Um, but holding that attention between growing and then there's still more work to be done. I think that's great. Um, I think giving lots of room for creativity for us as leaders or parents to kind of step back as well and try to grieve that fantasy of maybe my child won't become the next Elon Musk or whatnot, but they're gonna become something great, something that I didn't expect. Um, so giving room for that to happen as well. Um, I hope that answers some of your questions um, in, in what people are thinking about as well. Okay, I see this next question. Do you have any wisdom strategies on how we might encourage youth to see their value in so much more than their achievements, especially academic ones, to see themselves as image bearers, children of God, with the context of cultural and parents' pressures? Um, yeah, this is, let's see. I think it relates to that second point of expanding our goals and our standards. So what we praise, what we encourage, what we invest our time and money into, it's not just about um, academic achievements or towards that career goals, but it's maybe we can think about passions, values, and we can talk about interpersonal capacities. So how we relate to one another, like, wow, you're so kind, you're being generous, um, maybe even in, within disposition and personality. Right? I really like how you're so curious but curiosity can go a long way to becoming a great researcher someday, but curious um, isn't so much tied to these achievements, these grades, these um, measurable outcomes, which are good too, um, but curiosity can really can be fostered and grown, I think, detached from all that's academic, all that's kind of employment oriented as well. Um, and hopefully as we start to build up these other pieces that are softer, maybe more, less tangible. Maybe we can start to think about whole image bearers instead. 
Yeah, I love that. Uh, it seems like you're referring to or pointing towards us as parents or adults who are working with young folks to really find the root, um, you know, what's really motivating them, what's really moving them at the root, rather than just focusing on the external uh, performance aspect and what they achieve. So I'm sure that takes some skill set. <laughs> we might not be uh, doing it uh, in a perfect way, uh, but hopefully we can learn. Um, here's one last one we do have time for, yeah. and I think it uh, it's a it might be a tough one, Doctor Jin, but it's it's the relationship between perfectionism and perfect pervasive depression anxiety. So could you speak to how we can stop pervasive depression anxiety from influencing the cycle of perfectionism? Yeah, that and I, and I like the way that that question's framed. It's thinking about the mental health um, clinical levels of mental health first that continue to perpetuate perfectionism. Um, we can flip it the other way around, maybe how these tendencies of perfectionism um, perpetuate clinical levels of depression and anxiety. So um, of course, I think there's already some great workshops thinking about uh, when do we refer out right, to professional mental health um, providers um, that sometimes we're practicing at the top of our scope of our profession. And so um, more specifically to this question, um, well, with depression, there's a sense, a lack of hopelessness. There's an inability to seek out those goals or maybe even identify them. There's a negative view of self and others and even the future, like, oh, I don't know what the future is going to, I can't even think about that. And so it's in, in that way, it's, it might be hard to have those goals. And so how can we start to identify some small pieces and know that it might take time to reach those goals? Depression could also be impacted because of the self-criticism. And I think this is tied to some thoughts, but also our feelings and the way that we relate to ourselves. So this small triangle um, that oftentimes people who are depressed are very critical of themselves. Um, and that criticism is actually a way to channel some of our anger because we all feel angry. It's got to be expressed somehow. But oftentimes when we can't express it outward in a healthy, safe way, then we turn inward. And that's when we start to attack ourselves, criticize ourselves, criticize ourselves diminish ourselves as well. So um, that might be depression, anxiety, I think related to this fixation or this obsession, um, constantly thinking about, am I better than or less than? Am I gonna be compared to? Who's gonna evaluate me? So a lot of these thoughts, how can we start to practice um, settling in, calming our nervous system, calming um, our anxiety down? And we often have to do this in relationship, don't we? Maybe with, um, a, a safe uh, mentor or maybe a caregiver or a partner or a therapist, oftentimes all these combinations, but how can we kind of insert ourselves for those who are anxious so that they can help settle themselves down? It's like, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. I know there's a lot, there's a lot on your mind. Can we just pause for this moment and just see if we can hold on to this quiet moment for a little bit? And again, it takes time. We're thinking about progression and development. So it's not going to happen just like that. But it, can we expand that window um, of quiet and settling? Um, perhaps the anxiety will fall down a little bit more. Wish I could go more specific, um, Olivia, but thanks for that question. Dr. Jen, while we have you, maybe one more question. Sure. We do have a few minutes, okay? Let's go for it. And maybe this is a, perhaps a question I also had. Uh -huh. But um, Umbi here asked, um, that she drives herself so hard to perform and often feel critical and disappointed afterwards. I try self-affirmations and don't always feel like they make a difference. So do you ever struggle with this and how do you cope when you don't feel different? I, I, I think just to add on to that, like as a pastor myself too, um, as, as much as you like to affirm yourself, sometimes the self-talk and self-therapy or resting, if there is uh, constant perpetual perhaps criticism outside in from the spectators per se and which we obviously get a lot as pastors or people on stage how do you deal with that and are there some helpful tips that you can offer yeah yeah thanks john and, and b for for this question and it, it seems it's like a it's a more personal question too so of course yeah of course um you know uh I, I struggle with this too and i'm trying to cope in different ways um, you know, there's, I think different, I probably could have had a slide of different levels of intervention, like the depth of intervention that people ought to have. And so perhaps it's starting with self affirmations, but then those words bounce off you or you, you're asking your partner or like 
life group members to speak into your life, but that bounces off of you. And so there might be something um, deeper at play there. Um, I come from, um, I, I see some mentions of different psychotherapy orientations, cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm a little bit more emotion focused. And so I'm curious, like the function of that perfectionism or um, the function of those affirmations not sticking and landing with us, like where does that develop? Um, and what's the, what was the function of that in the past? And how is it making it hard right now in the present? And so um, I, I, I think, I mean, psychotherapy is always on my mind as a vehicle of sanctification. And so how can psychotherapy be a, a resource for someone who has more deep seated perfection? It's like, it feels like it's a character logical, there's something innate about us. So um, I'd say it's not innate, it's maybe just deeply ingrained and uh, reinforced um, from parenting, social, cultural context, maybe just your job. Um, but being able to um, start to think about, okay, what's the function of these thoughts? Why might not these words be sticking with me? Um, what are some underlying emotions that are coming up that kind of keep me stuck? That's why I try to touch on grief and anger. Um, those are some of my hunches that get me thinking and going. Um, sorry, I can't be more specific in our short amount of time though. All right. It was short. I felt like it was short, both seminars. Um, but thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jin, for this seminar. Um, as you can tell, there are biblical scripture going up there. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of them by our uh, seminar um, attendees. But I know some of you guys wanted further resources. Um, and okay. For questions for Dr. Jin. I would just propose, please uh, send those towards Center for Asian American Christianity to David and us here at Princeton, and we will try our best to respond best that we can. Um, but these seminars are recorded along with the plenary in the beginning, so hopefully those will be available for you. At this time, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Jin, for um, leading us. Yes, all the emojis, hearts, and claps, and high fives. Um, for the rest of us, um, we can just thank Dr. Jen here, and we will see you in the main campus, main room. So for the closing remarks by David, we thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thanks, all. Thank you, Dr. Jen. <laughs>